almost 40 years ago, <clears throat> Paige's mom, my mother-in-law, decided that she wanted to buy us a TV, which was a good thing. We didn't have a TV, and more than that, we didn't have any money to buy a TV. So it was a wonderful gift. And so she said, go pick out the TV, and I'll buy it. Well, that sent me on a mission. And this is before the days of the Internet. Now, there were days, most some of you are gray-haired enough to know, there was a time we didn't have the Internet. So if you were going to do research like that, you had to actually walk into the store and talk to people and look at all the, 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 the marks of each TV set and how much it was and all of its specifications. And we were trying to buy a big one at the time, I think 21 inches. Maybe 24, I don't remember. But, and so I was immersed in this. I, I, we, I wanted to buy the best TV set we could, but I also wanted for uh, my mother-in-law, Daryl, not to spend as much money as she needed to spend. And so we, I went in and I looked at all the specifications and I, I matched them up and I, and I compared them all and some were found wanting and others I thought would be good. And then I would look at prices and I would look at sales and what was going on. And my mother-in-law was like, just go buy a TV set. I'm buying it, just go buy I'm sure my wife was saying the same thing. I just remember Daryl saying that. I was pursuing this comparison game, using my own wisdom to try to figure out what the best buy would be. And Daryl was like, I'm telling you, I'm just buying a TV set. Just go do it. And you may say, well, I would never be that crazy about trying to buy stuff or like that. Really? How many times have you gone down the rabbit hole of the internet trying to find the best airline fare? or the best app to, to figure out what you want to do, or the cheapest Verbo or, or Airbnb and, and making deals with that, and the, the cheapest way you can have your entire trip to go. How many times do you go down there and read 4,565 customer reviews so that you can make sure that somebody else has already affirmed what you're doing? We do this, but it's all based on our wisdom, how we assess the wisdom of everyone else and whether we find it valid or not. Well, what if we could just have a, a place where we could go and just say, and I'm not talking about AI. Maybe it can do that, but we're not going there. <clears throat> you could just say, what's the best TV set to buy? And out comes the answer. Already researched, already done, true, factual. My bent is still to go see if it's true, right? It's to go research it. It's to compare one thing with another until I decide which one is best. This is definitely the way the world works. If we move out into the spiritual realm and we, say the way, we see the way the world works because the world looks at all of God, his creation, and they say no. They look at his, what he says is good and they say no. They look at what he says is evil and they say that's what we want. So we live in a world that good is called evil and evil is called good, which is an abomination to God. We live in a world that whatever is, is brought forth as right is considered to be passe, old. And if you stand for that, well, you just need silenced. You need, you need marginalized because that's not our feeling. We have weighed your claims and compared them to ours, and we like ours better. The world works that way. And we can all point our fingers and say, yeah, that's the way they work out there. Boy, if God says it's good, they just suppress the truth with a lie and God gives them over and they go after all the evil in the world. And that is true. That's how evil men advance. That's how evil men decide to do what their flesh wants instead of what the, what the spirit wants. 
But we do the same thing, don't we? There are times that we are in the world and we are assessing things according to our own wisdom. We are comparing other options to God and either find them equal or maybe even more palatable than God. And you say, I would never do that. Are you sure? Are you positive? That you don't look at the world and your options and choose by your flesh sometimes rather than by the Spirit? That you go against what the Word of God says instead of what the Word of God says? See, it's possible for us. Isaiah is writing this week in our sermon text to the remnant. So he's writing not only to God's people, both circumcised of heart and non-circumcised of heart, both Israel physical and Israel spiritual. He's writing to spiritual Israel, the remnant. So it is possible for us to exercise comparisons with God and find Him wanting. And I don't know about you, but if Isaiah tells us how to avoid that, I want to know. Do you? If you are here and you are outside of Christ, Isaiah is going to tell you how to avoid it as well. But he's going to hold before us the unique greatness of God and the foolishness of comparing him with anyone else. And I want that to sit in our hearts this morning so that we're never guilty of that because he's given us the word to guide us in another direction. He's given us his spirit to affirm truth within us. Isaiah chapter 46 I'm going to read just chapter 46 for now. I'm not going to, we're going to cover 46 and 47. If you've done your study, you know there, there is much repetition in these chapters, but there is also, uh, it's, they're also full of new things for us. So stand with me as I read chapter 46, and then we'll read chapter 47 section by section as we go through that. Isaiah 46. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this. And stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, 
my counsel shall stand, and, my, uh, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So to put 46, 47, and chapter 48 into our context, just remind us, sometimes we need to to raise the altitude of our plane and move out of the verse by verse and just remind us. Remember that Isaiah, those first 39 chapters were one major section of Isaiah. When we got to chapter 40, things changed. The language changed. The, the, the audience became not only just the, the people in Isaiah's day, but also became with the people who were in Babylon in captivity in God's direct sight, clearly identified. And when we see chapters 40 through 48, that is the first section of the second half of Isaiah. Then we have the second section that will be 49 through 55, and that all makes up one section with two focus, two foci there. Then from 55 to the end, we have the third major section of Isaiah. So this week, 46 and 47, next week, 48, we'll close off that first part of Isaiah 40 and following. And what we see in the first part, Isaiah 40 to 48, is this big picture now of Israel physically in captivity, and God, and they're in captivity because of their sin, and God is raising up a human to, re, to, to be their deliverer. But at the end of chapter 48, the last verse says there is no peace for the wicked. So we still have a sin problem. God is raising up a physical deliverer to physically deliver them. Remember, all but one of the references to servant in, the, in chapters 40 through 48 refer to Israel. But then when we turn to chapter 49 to 55, all of those references to servant but one refer to the the Messiah, the Messianic servant. So there is a sin problem that God still needs to deal with. He's delivered them physically, but there's still no rest. So what does God intend to do? That moves us into chapter 49 to 55, where we meet even more clearly the Messianic servant, culminating in Isaiah 52 to the end of 52 and through 53, the suffering servant. So that places us back into our framework of where we are in Isaiah. In our chapters today, 46 and 47, there's there's a close relationship to 48 as well, but 46 and 47 we'll look at today because we're looking at it as what God says about Babylon's idols and what God says about Babylon as a nation, those who worship those idols. Now, we want to keep in mind another, another facet of this. When the Bible speaks about Babylon, many times the Bible is speaking not just about the historical city, but speaking about the whole system that's at opposition with God. We see that in Revelation in chapter 18, where Babylon is the name given to all the enemies of God and how they have risen up against him and what God will do um, against them and for his people. So we want to have both historical Babylon 
and Cyrus coming to deliver them physically. We want to have them in mind, but we also want to have our eyes lifted to all that are in opposition to God, all the cities and nations and peoples who are in opposition to God because the same truths obtain for them. So we just read chapter 46, which is half of our text. Yahweh, and in these verses, Yahweh delivers two messages concerning his plans for his people and his enemies. Two messages concerning his plan for his people and his enemies. One of those messages will be to uh, the idols and and God's people and, and how they should not be connected with them. And the other message will be about Babylon and his promise to destroy Babylon and all future Babylon. So first, this first message concerning his plan for his people and his enemies, Yahweh warns his people to listen and remember. Now, I hope you saw as we read through chapter 46, the beginning of verse 3, listen to me. The beginning of verse 8, remember this. And then again in verse 8, remember. Also a command to stand firm in what you remember. And then in verse 12, listen to me. Kind of marks off the sections after we get through the first two verses. So in this warning to his people to listen and remember, we are first given a fact. Babylon's idols are a burden and require carrying because they are dead. Look at verse 1. We have this mention of Bel and Nebo, Bel bowing down and Nebo stooping. So in the Babylonian framework of religion, Bel is the leader of the pantheon. Bel means God or Lord. Bel means Lord in Babylonian. So this would have been the head of all the pantheon. And Nebo, in, in, the, in the Babylonian view of religion, Nebo was his son. Now Nebo, his, his main um, idol that was crafted, lived in a town right outside of Babylon. It lived in a town called Barsippa. And it, every year, at the beginning of the year for the new year, they would march that idol up into Babylon, and they would have a festival. The festival was called the Akita Fest, or Kitu, Akitu Festival, and they would march these idols through the street in a victorious way. So I, God is speaking through Isaiah to talk about just such a, a progression Now, it's hard for us to say, well, this is speaking specifically when Cyrus came in with his armies and overthrew Babylon, because if you remember, that was kind of a silent coup, remember? They they blocked off the water and sent it to a different place of the Euphrates River so they could walk in water that was about thigh high, and they just walked in and took everything over. It was pretty quick. So maybe in the advance of Cyrus, some people did this, moved idols from one place to another. I think what we're seeing here is God is saying, listen, all idols that you treat like this, they're all deficient in the same ways. So in verse 1, gods and idols that, are, that would be known to those who were in captivity in Babylon, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock, so they're being carried, not even by the people, but the people have placed them on beasts of burden. Now look what it says. These things you carry are born. In other words, they're, they're born by these beasts as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden. They have to be carried, they have no salvific power, they have to be carried themselves, and they, they themselves are going into captivity. So why does this happen? Well, I want to skip over to 5, verse 5. We're going to come back to the beginning of of 5 and look at 5 in a minute, but look at verse 6. More description of these idols. 
Those who lavish gold from their purse and weigh out silver in the scales. Literally, this is weigh out silvers on the rod. And it's talking about the rod that would hold the the two pans that they would weigh things out on. They hire a goldsmith. He makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. An exclamation point. It's like, how foolish is this? They lift it to their shoulders. Look at how this is saying that the gods are dead. These idols, these things that they carry that are beast, uh, that, are, that are burdens to the beasts, they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. You cry to it, it doesn't answer. And it cannot save you from trouble. As it's been said many times, idols are useless because when you need them the most, they don't deliver what they promise. And that's the way all idols are. So the picture is being painted that we have seen many times in this section of Isaiah. We're not going to spend any more time here. Idols are created by men, and they need, specifically we see here, they need carried by men. They are unable to move on their own. They are inanimate, and whenever they are carried around, they are a burden to those who carry. And this is being set up for us for one reason and one reason only, to bring out the ludicrousy of following such um, idols when you have the one true living God. So the fact is, Babylon's idols are a burden and require carrying because they are dead. So listen, listen is what Isaiah says to the remnant. Listen, I have made, will bear, will carry, and will save you from birth through death. Look at this wonderful verse in verse 3. Listen to me. Now, let's back up and make sure we remember what listen means most of the time in the Old and New Testaments. It doesn't just mean that you have words going into your cranium, right? It means that you are listening, you are hearing, you are understanding, and you are acting upon it. If you have heard something but not acted upon it, you haven't listened well. That's what's conveyed here. So listen to me, O house of Jacob, and then our parallelism, all the remnant of the house of Israel. So he's speaking to those people who are the remnant, who physically are returning to do what God has sent Cyrus to release them and equip them to do. But they're also the remnant in the spiritual sense. These are the believing ones who will actually go according to the word of God and not stay back fearfully. And then he describes this remnant. Look at how it's described, how they are described who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. So before you were even born, when you were still in the womb, Yahweh says, I carried you. Now we're talking about the people in the nation here, but this is true for all of us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ here, these are promises to you that God has been addressing you as a person since you were conceived in your mother's womb and that you were a thought either even before the foundation of the world. You were on his mind then before he even physically created you. You have never been left stranded from your mother's womb. It makes us feel like the psalm that we sang last week, uh, for you formed my inward parts, Psalm 139, 13. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What a wonderful promise to us. We were, we're not just not forgotten today. We've never been forgotten. 
God has always superintended us. He has brought us about to live in this world for his purposes, for his glory, and nothing can, sw- can thwart it. Several theologians throughout the years have said things like this. I'm immortal until I finish the purposes for which God rose me up. And there's truth to that, is there not? If God accomplishes his purposes, then whatever he has for you will come to pass. You can't get in its way, even if you're pursuing sin, because God causes all things to work together for good for those who are the called and who loved him, that are called according to his purpose. We are the ones that God has set his affection on. What a glorious promise. But verse 4 even carries it further. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. So even when you're old, that Bible's, the Bible's wonderful way of saying that your gray hair is, is a sign of wisdom. Your gray hair is a sign uh, that God has given you your life and you are living it to his glory. And he promises to do that even to the end. There is no time that we are outside of his purview, even when we walk in darkness, as we just sang. Even when we're confused by our surroundings, there is no time that his affections are not set upon us and he is in the process of delivering us. This is what God does because he is God. How do we know? Look at, the, look at verse 4 at the end. I have made you and I will bear, I will carry and will save. This is, a, this is the sovereignty of God in his creating of you and his saving of you compared to the the salvation by works that are in verses 1 and 2. You see that, right? Putting your faith and trust in idols that cannot save, that's seeking by works. Whatever you are doing, whatever, whatever you give to that idol, whatever power you give it, you're expecting it to save, and it will not do so. But God offers spiritual salvation, and he does it completely through grace, in his own sovereign will, in his own sovereign way. He has created you, he made you. He has, he has born you since you were in the womb. He will carry you along, whether it's light or dark in your life, no matter what your circumstances are. He will carry you, and he will save you both now and bring you into the new heavens and new earth as his people. These are promises to you and to I, from, to me, from Scripture. And they're all based in the Exodus language, this idea of bearing. Listen to these few passages. Exodus 19. Verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Or Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy starts with this phraseology and ends with it. Verse, chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. After Israel rebelled against God and refusing to take the promised land, remember, the, the spies came back, says, they're giants, they're, you know, the, the fortified cities, we probably shouldn't go do that. So God speaks and says, do not be in dread or afraid of them. Yahweh, your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how Yahweh your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. 
And at the end, in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, he found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him and cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like the eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Yahweh alone guided him. No foreign god was with him, but Yahweh was. So these are sweet and precious promises to us as believers. They're sweet and precious promises that God is undergirding and carrying and bearing you through every situation, and he will bring you home. No questions, and not due to your strength or your work. Now, this is a foundation that Isaiah says, listen to this, because what he's going to say, if we forget that, we're easily swept up into winds of doubt. We're easily swept up into our own wisdom, comparing other things to God and not trusting in him. So not only the fact of the idols and listen to to what God has done, but remember, remember, I am unique. I have accomplished my purpose purposes before, and I will do it again in Cyrus. Now, this is why this language from the Exodus was used in verses 3 and 4, to remind the people of God, I have acted this way before, and I'm acting according to my character, and I'm acting the way I'm always going to act. And look what he says in verse 8. We're going to come back to verse 5 in just a minute. Look what he says in verse 8. Remember this, and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. That word has the idea of rebellion. It's the same kind of word that's used in the, in the first chapter, in the second verse of Isaiah, where, I, where God identifies his people as rebels against his word. Stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Now, this is nothing new to us, right? This has been three times already that we have had the gods, little g, compared to the one true God, and God is the one who said what was going to happen in past days, and it came about who can look back at what happens, what he caused, and tell you why it happened, and he's telling you what will happen in the future and why it will happen because he, he's carrying out his own purposes. No gods can do that. There's always crickets when the challenge comes. The gods are silent because they cannot speak and they cannot act. So this is all um, old news from Isaiah, but it's pertinent here because he's talking about one specific time where he is carrying out his purposes. Look at verse 11. His purposes are standing. He will accomplish his purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Now, we've already learned that that Cyrus was referred to as the one coming from the east in um, chapter 42. He was the one who was coming from the east, or chapter 41, verse 2. So I think this is Cyrus here. There's disagreement here, but I think he's reminding them I'm talking to you about this physical deliverer, but I'm preparing you that you need more than a physical deliverer. But a physical deliverer is what I promised, and that's what I will bring about. And all the practices, I've said it before, I'll carry out my purposes. You need to remember this, remember it, and stand firm upon that, that even though, remember, what we've already learned is that when he revealed his promises, there were people in Israel that bucked up against him, remember? They challenged him, what are you doing this way? How can you possibly do this? 
We can picture them complaining that it wasn't somebody from the line of David that was raised up to do that. So there are people questioning him, and he's bringing them back to their minds now. Remember who I am, including who you are to me, verses 3 and 4. Remember all of those things. I want to go back at this point to verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? So we've seen these challenges already. We've seen the challenges before that there's no one like me. I, I, I am God. There is no other. But now it's brought in the middle of this contrast with Nebo, um, with Nebo and Bel in this contrast. And also in the disobedience of the people. God's people are rebels. God's people are stubborn of heart, which we'll see in verse 12. Well, why? Because the word to them is, in verse 5, this isn't to all the idol bearers. This is to God's people. To whom will you liken me? And make me an equal and compare me that we may be alike. And this is where we have to open ourselves up to the truth of the word and ask ourselves very clearly, do we do that? Do we have people or institutions or situations in our life that we substitute that for the God who has revealed himself as being all-powerful, all-sufficient, and all-satisfying for us? Do we ever do that? And I fear that not only do we put them on equal frames, but sometimes we put God on a lesser frame. That, that if we were going to put him on a stand, it would be below the idol that we choose to worship because we have decided in our wisdom that that is the way that we should go. Every time that you say or think or act as if I know what God says, but, you know, we've used that phrase a lot in the 13 years that I've been here. It's right from scripture. We don't want to have that phrase in our mouth, do we? We want to have, I know what my situation looks like, but God and how does God address it? But if we switch that around and we say, I know what God says, but the next thing we have to put in there is, I think I'll do, and we place ourselves in place of God. So we have looked at God, looked at his promises, compared our wisdom, and found them at least on equal footing at this point. Because we know what he says, but we put a but after it. Every time you do that, you compare what your fleshly desires are with God and make it not equal, but even more if you act upon it. Can I get more personal? Every time you look other places for wisdom, you are minimizing the uniqueness of God. And this happens all the time. This is why Luke is teaching a class for us in 10 months or for 10 months. You could have probably taught this class, what, two years, month to month? Yeah, so, so there's a lot. that we, 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 It may be 10 months, and you're going, really? We'll just be glad we've condensed it because it could have gone a lot more. But the reason is we want you to understand the sufficiency of Scripture for your life. And every time you choose something else rather than what Scripture says, you have looked at God, compared him to something else, and found him wanting. Every time you think, well... You think things like, I know the Bible says I, I'm not supposed to gossip, but I'm not really gossiping. I'm just giving prayer requests. You're justifying your own flesh for the clear commands from God. And you're saying, I know what God has said, but I found it at least equal. So I'm not going to gossip really. I'm just going to put in a prayer request and act like I'm praying instead of gossiping. 
I'm really tempted to be angry a lot. And I have my reasons. You don't know what I've gone through, a person might say. And I'm not near as angry as I used to be, but I'm still angry. And I need help with that anger. And so I'm going to a psychologist or a psychiatrist to help me do that. And they're teaching me how to punch pillows and beat up stuffed dolls and go into my past and deal with my past of what others have done with me. Because it's not my fault I'm angry. It's somebody else's fault that I'm angry. When the Word of God says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and gives you the gospel and the power of the gospel and the love and sustenance of care of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to crucify your sin of anger. But if you go the other direction, you have compared God's Word with your wisdom and you have found Him lacking. Just plug in your sin. Plug in whatever it is you're dealing with. Well, I know I shouldn't be anxious, but this is the way God made me. No, this is where you choose to be. Might you have other reasons to be anxious? Absolutely. Does God's word not apply to you? Of course it does. When you say God's word doesn't help me, I need something more, you have found the world's way and God's way and you have compared them and you have found him lacking. Plug in the sin that you struggle with. Plug in the thing that you were looking for help in other places. Listen, when you, when you decide that you're going to have an affair on your wife or husband or you're going to look at pornography or you are going to be that flirtatious person, what you're saying is the word of God is not valuable to me, but my own flesh is because I know God promises that he will sustain me, but I think I need this for happiness. I think my happiness depends on having a different husband or wife. I think my happiness depends on, on watching things that I know I shouldn't watch, but, you know, it's all covered by the cross. When God says, flee from sexual immorality, love your wife as Christ loved the church, and God says this is a wonderful gift, this thing, for, for marriage, but not for you to use otherwise, that it's an immoral act, but you think, I need this for my happiness. I can't control it. Now, am I saying it's not hard to do? You bet you it can be hard to do at times. But is God's word sufficient? Yes. It claims sufficiency for itself, and it is. But you must crucify flesh and pursue Christ by applying his word. Otherwise, you've made a comparison and found him lacking. Have I gotten personal enough? We're tempted at this all the time, aren't we? We're tempted to say, God's word is not enough, or that's not for me, or God will love me anyway. I know what it says, but God will still love me. Well, if this is you, and you claim Christ, aren't you glad the text doesn't stop there? Aren't you glad that the hope is still in the gospel? Because there is hope. Look at verse 12 in chapter 46. Another listen command. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. <laughs> now that's God talking to his people. We go, really? They're willing to go back? I mean, we're assuming that. We know in history that that happens, that there's a group of people that go back. Does he really need to call them stubborn of heart? Doesn't that just seem a little cruel, God? Build them up a little bit. How about some encouragement, God? You... But we know that he's already done that, hasn't he? He's already given the encouragement. From your birth to your old age, I made you, I will bear you, I will carry you, and I will save you. There's encouragement. 
And if we're pursuing sin, what kind of God would he be if he didn't come after us? That's what he promises, right? He promises to discipline those he loves. So if we are in Christ and we are pursuing sin, we are pursuing things where we've compared God with other things and found him lacking, he doesn't just let us go and say, well, I think I'll take my favor off of them because from birth to death, we are his. And so he pursues us. It is the loving thing, and this is what God does. So when the Old Testament in these passages talks about judging his people, we do know that uncircumcised heart Israel, the Israel that was not true, that was unbelieving, received his judgment. Those who are believing and were believing received his discipline, and he constantly brought them back. And that's what he does for us. That's why we love each other enough to do the same thing. So yes, he says, you're stubborn of heart because you are still doubting what I'm saying. We learned that last chapter. And you're, you're still looking and you're, you're, you're still judging me and finding me lacking. But what does he say? Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness. Now that's been a mark all the way through Isaiah that must be attained, right? It comes from Yahweh. It's represented by his servant, by the coming Messiah. And he's saying there are people that are far from that righteousness. But look at the good news. I bring near my righteousness, and it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. The promise is even though you're rebels, even though you're stubborn of heart, I'm working out my purposes for my good and your glory. And that's his promise to do. So we as believers can have times in our lives where we're pursuing sin, wantonly pursuing sin, and God will come after us. And you know what? Oftentimes he'll use the people sitting in those chairs right around you to come do that. He'll send them because they love you. He'll send them because they believe in the word. He'll send them because you have professed allegiance to Christ through this church. You, you've, you've can profess that you trust the word of God to do all of this. And so when you're blinded by your own flesh, the people come after you. And that is a good and loving thing. So there is hope even in the midst of darkness. There is hope for you this morning. If you are outside of Christ, there is still hope for you because his righteousness is not far off from you. He has come. He has sent his son to live a perfect life and die a perfect death. He was raised again. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he said salvation is available to anyone. The worst possible person you could think of in the world is not beyond salvation because Christ died to save sinners. So he holds that out, and he is long-suffering and patient with you. He hasn't already killed you for your sin, and he could have remained righteous and loving and done that. But he's patient so that that patience would lead you to repentance. So today, today is the day the righteousness that you require may seem far away from you, but it is close in Christ. It requires you to repent of your sins and turn to him. And I call you today to do that. You must do that today because otherwise you're still part of the Babylon that will be fully and finally judged and destroyed and sent to the place of eternal punishment. Turn to him today. And if you sitting here are a believer and this has crushed you because you are justifying your sin, the gospel that God used to save you is the gospel he's sanctifying you by every day. 
you repent of your sin and turn back to him and say, none of that is satisfying. And listen, you know in your heart where you have weighed God against secular theology and thinking and found him wanting, you know it has never produced the righteousness of God and it has never satisfied you. If it does, it's for a minute because sin satisfies for a minute. Oh, it presents itself as something that satisfies for a long time. It presents itself as something that satisfies like nothing other. And then once you capitulate, the vacuous nature of the, of the joy that comes from that is exposed quickly. And you know that Jesus will never do that to you. And he says, return, repent, because I have created you before your mother, before you were even in your mother's womb, I created you, and I will walk with you until your hair is gray. Cradle to grave, you were mine. Return to me. Well, we don't, even, we don't just have the idols of Babylon. We have Babylon in our focus. The first message was Yahweh warns his people to listen and remember. The second message is Yahweh promises to destroy Babylon and all future Babylons. The first thing in this list of four qualifications for this destruction, he will remove their throne and humiliate them. Sit on the ground. Look at verse 1 of 47. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Now what's, being, what's going to be shown here is, the, is a metaphor, a picture of a pristine, beautiful, entitled virgin debutante who has everything. And they are living in light of that um, physical and human recognition. It has gone to their head. They're prideful. And God is going to use that, that picture to show how he will humiliate them. Remember, all through Isaiah, we've seen this. We're not going to go back and look at all the passages, but all through Isaiah, we have seen God using words that are, that are like high and lofty, and then he will take them down. And sometimes he talks about trees, sometimes he talks about valleys and mountains, but he's always talking about arrogant, prideful people who have weighed him in the scales and found him wanting. And he says he will overcome their pride by humiliating him. That's what's pictured here. The third phrase of 47.1. Sit on the ground without a throne. So come down from your exalted place and sit on the ground in the dust, the place of servants, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Remember, in most of the Bible language, Chaldeans and Babylonians are the same. Chaldean and Babylonian are the same. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone and grind flour. That would be the most menial of tasks. Put off your veil. Now that veil could be even the sign of their virginity. Take it off. Put it off to the side. It definitely is a sign of wealth. Take it off. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. So this, this could be talking about two things or both things together. That this is the oncoming army that has its way with women and, and does unspeakable things to them. And it could also be, maybe one or the other, or maybe both, just the picture of coming from royalty sitting on a throne to the lowest possible servant where your loins are girded for work so you can actually get around and work. It's all pointing toward humiliation. You thought you were something. I'm going to show you you were nothing. And your arrogance is going to be met with judgment. Look at the middle of verse 3. 
I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Now, what if there was a period there? No one is spared. There's no hope. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Now, I want you to realize that is a true statement. The vengeance of the Lord against sin, the wrath of God placed on sin, there is none of it that is spared. The question is, will you bear it or did Jesus bear it? Did Jesus bear the wrath of God on your behalf? Did he die the death that you were to die? Did he suffer in your place what you deserve for your sin? Because there isn't just a wink and a nod. Someone is going to bear it. It'll either be you and you cannot, or it will be Jesus and he has. Look at the next verse, the next half of that. The next verse, verse 4. Our Redeemer, it's as if Isaiah speaks in here. God has been speaking, I, I, I. Our Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. So even though all will have the vengeance put against him and God will spare no one, there is a Redeemer that comes. For those people who see the Redeemer, for those people who repent of their sins and turn to him, there is a Redeemer and he can redeem. Why? Because he's Yahweh uh, Sabaoth, Yahweh, Lord of hosts. He has all the power. This is who he is. He can do it. He has a desire to redeem. He has the power to redeem. And he's the Holy One of Israel, so he has the character to redeem. Held starkly in between. Judgment that no one will, will avoid or a redeemer that you must turn to. Right in the middle of Isaiah 47. That's the call to us that was just presented. Which side of this are you on? Are you trusting in the Redeemer or are you trusting in your own works? Because if you're trusting in your own works, you cannot avoid the vengeance of God. Well, he will remove their throne and humiliate them, sit on the ground. He will also remove their power and neuter them, sit in silence. Both of these words to sit are showing us the, the, the extent of God's movement against Babylon. And remember, this is against all Babylon's, all nations and people groups and powerhouses that come up against him. Look at verse 5. Sit in silence. Go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms, probably better the queen or the queen mother of kingdoms, that you sit above all the other kingdoms that are known and you're the queen over all of them. You will no more sit like that. I was angry with my people, I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. So this is God's action, right? His people sinned. He was a covenant faithful God, and he sent them into Babylon in, in for, to, un, under the rule of someone else. They were deported there, and he did this because he's faithful. But look what is shown to us. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. So you went beyond my purposes. I've said my purposes will stand, and I did raise you up. Cyrus could have done a very wonderful thing by realizing that Yahweh, the God of the universe, rose him up, did it out of obedience to him, and then worshiped the God of Israel for the rest of his life. But he didn't. Babylon took them into, into captivity, and they could have turned to their God as well. 
but they didn't. And in fact, Babylon, known for their cruelty and their cruelness, took, to, took them to task in ways that God never intended to, treated them in ways that God never intended to. So not only are they guilty, but they're guilty of exceeding what God said. And he knows that because he showed them no mercy. Babylon showed them no mercy and put exceedingly heavy yokes on the aged, which the aged had never even been in that position to begin with. Any yoke. Verse 7. You said, I shall be mistress forever. So they're claiming Babylon is claiming that their power and their glory as a nation will be forever so that you did not lay these things to, be, to heart or remember their end. So God's not just looking at their actions. God's looking at their hearts because God knows the hearts of all men. This is what John chapter 1 tells us when people were coming to Jesus and he said he didn't entrust himself to all of them because he knew the hearts of men. So it's, not, it's the, not just their actions, it's their motives. It's their heart that God is judging. And the heart stays in our picture. From verses 5 to 7, moving to verses 8 through 11. He will remove their power and neuter them, sit in silence, but he will also judge them for their arrogance. Look at verse 8. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. Now, that is a fearful statement, isn't it? Especially in Isaiah. We have heard multiple times that God talks about his own uniqueness. There is none like me. I am God. There is no other. Now, here we have the arrogance of a nation who thinks that eternally they will sit on the throne, and eternally there will be no one else like them. This offends God. Why? Because God shares his glory with no one. I shall not sit as a widow. This is still Babylon speaking. God putting these words, describing them. Babylon saying, I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. And then God says, these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. In other words, your people will not continue and you will be knocked off your throne shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. Now, we'll talk about that again in a couple of verses. But verse 10 continues, You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, No one sees me. This is what Israel did earlier, remember? They acted as if God didn't see what they were doing. They were sinning, making their plans, and they acted as if God didn't see them. You say, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. You said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. So this again is describing in completeness the evil, the self-centeredness, the arrogance, the claim to God-like behavior that Babylon and all Babylons have, that they claim that what they're... And God tells them very quick, very... Um, Specifically, your wisdom and your knowledge has led you astray. Do you feel that? 
your wisdom and your, what you thought was right, what you thought you assessed the world to be, it has led you astray because I am God and there is no other, not you. And I know your heart, I know your arrogance and you should be bowed to me. I am, I created you in my image, God would say, and you are now my enemies and you refuse to do what I've asked you to do. So this is your wisdom and your knowledge has led you astray. This is what happens in our world every single day, doesn't it? All around us, people are using their own wisdom and their own knowledge, leading them astray so that they thumb their noses at what God says. And now we don't even just do it in the darkness, we do it in the, in the light. And not only do we do it in the light, but we've reached the end of Romans 1 where we're not only affirming those who do it, but demanding that other people do the same thing. And God is saying, I will not stand for this. So for us that live in this world, even though we might feel like we're in the darkness that we sang about in Psalm 88, for us that live in this world, we know that God is ruler over all of this, and whether he is choosing to be long-suffering today so that many would come to repentance, that's his business. But we know that he will judge the world in righteousness. And we are not to be a part of that, which we'll look at in just a moment. So even though those people... are living like this, and God's people are watching them, everyone, Babylon, their leaders, their people, God's people need to know that God is not going to stand by and let this, not happen, but let this continue, because verse 11 tells us that, doesn't it? But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you, suddenly, of which you know nothing. These are the same language that's used in Revelation 18 about the, the Babylon personified. It, it's, the, the words single day and single hour are used four or five times in that. Taking their language right here from Isaiah, it will come upon you swiftly. You may not realize it because you're not seeing it, but it will come, and when it comes, it comes swiftly. Why? Because God carries out his purposes. He carries out his plans. I remember a, a very famous statement by Donald Rumsfeld in 2003 after the attacks on Iraq. The press were asking things like, well, it seems you didn't follow the battle plan. What went wrong? And Rumsfeld just looked at him. He was the Secretary of Defense at the time. He just looked at him and he said, uh, excuse me, I don't believe you had the battle plan. And it just shut down the argument. You can't talk to us whether we follow the battle plan because you don't know it. This is what God is saying. Don't talk to me, Babylonians, about the battle plan because you don't know it. And he says it to us. Submit to me because you trust me and I know the battle plan. I am accomplishing my purposes. Babylon will go to destruction. God's people will be saved as the promises of God tell us and reveal to us. So he will judge them for their arrogance. But finally, he will not save them and they cannot save themselves. Look at verse 12. Stand fast in your enchantments. Now just keep in mind, Babylon was known for all of their, their uh, sorcerers and mediums and all their mystical behavior. They, will, they were known for that. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Now what's that telling? So far you haven't. It's not worked for you yet, but perhaps you'll be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You haven't done that yet, but perhaps you might. You are wearied with your many counsels. All these people have their opinions, and none of them are working for you, and you're getting tired of it. Let them stand forth and save you. You need delivered. Call them forth. 
Let them save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, those, those astrologists that try to predict on the, by the basis of the movement of the stars what will happen, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Go ahead and go to them. See if they will save you. But verse 14 tells us the truth, doesn't it? Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves for the power of the fl- from the power of the flame. No coal for warning oneself is this. No fire to sit before. So what's he saying? Judgment will be swift and it will be complete. Just like chaff is so easily burned and it just burns up very quickly. You're not going to be able to cook a meal on this. I mean, you may use your idols to cook food on and bake bread on the rest of the wood. You're not going to be able to do anything with this. It will burn quickly and it will burn completely and you will be destroyed. Verse 15, such to you are those with whom you have labored, who you have done business with, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction, and there is no one to save you. Now, we know what that means. It doesn't mean there's not a redeemer. It means if you choose to go the route that you are going, there is no one in that group your idols, your necromancers, your stargazers, your, your, the people who work with magic, none of those people can save you. Nowhere is there salvation except in Yahweh, and we would say, and the son he sent who reveals God to them. Now, you and I, listen, we've already had our challenge um, of what to do, of our repentance. If we're a believer, we have to come to repentance If we're a non-believer, we have to come to repentance. It means turning away from what we want and turning toward Christ. That's our calling. We recognize we've offended a holy God, and what the world wants to do is just laugh that off. They just want to laugh that off. Now, you may have friends who call themselves believers. They say, don't worry about that. God is love. He loves you. Why are you worked up about that? Well, that would be like the old story of the Hungarian king who wakes up one day and realizes that his life doesn't match the holy God. And he pulls in his son, the prince, and says, man, I'm under conviction about this. What should I do? And the son just laughs it off, says, you're the king. What do you mean, what should you do? You're the king. Just, just let it go. You rule everything. It really doesn't matter. And it doesn't satisfy the king. It was like Job's counselors didn't satisfy Job. And so that night, he decided he was going to reveal to his son what was going on in his own heart. And at that time, that the king could call in the, the executioner at any time of day or night and show up at a person's house, and they would know that the decision has been made that they would lose their life. So the king sends the executioner in the middle of the night to his son, the prince, and he's drugged before the king. And the prince doesn't know what's gone on, and he is fearful, and you know what his question is, what did I do, and how do I make it right? And the king said, that's exactly what I asked you, and you told me that it meant nothing. But now, since you think you're going to die, you feel the spiritual battle that I've had. That's what we have the message on our lips to other people. It's what our heart tells us when our heart is saying, oh, don't worry about that. God is love, remember? If he saved you and he's created you from your mother's womb and will keep you until you have gray hairs, what difference does it do how you live and work today? What difference does it actually make? And you can answer with the truth of the word that it makes all the difference in the world because you are acting as an enemy of God. And so what do you do? The same thing you did when you came to faith. You repent of that sin and you turn back to Christ and you let him exalt you at the proper time. 
And that is your sanctification happening in real time. He's conforming you to the image and likeness of Christ who had no sin because you're turning away from your sin and trusting in Christ. Now, I'm not going to take the time to do it, but I'm going to give you an assignment. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 18 and see what God says about Babylon, which is all of the kingdoms of the world against God. See what his message is to Babylon, to all those who do business with Babylon, to all those who are caught up in the system that is Babylon, and see what his message is to the people, because this is the message to us. Come out! If you're caught up in the system of the world, come out! Return to the system of the scriptures. Return to the love of God in Christ. Return, come out of Babylon. That's the call on the final day of judgment. And it's, the final, it's the call for us here. It is the final call. And it, it takes humility. It takes us coming before the Lord and reminding us that he is the one, letting him remind us that he's the one who redeems us and he's the one who equipped us. And he reminds us of our calling. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. And we'll stop here. I know you know these verses. Matthew 11, verse 29. This is the call. And this is the Christ. This is the Christ who bears us and carries us. This is the Christ who calls us from Babylon in his grace. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Notice this. We move from slavery to the world and our flesh to slavery to God. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, not the world, not the world's systems, not the world's wisdom, not the world's desires, but me, Christ says. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, we're saddling up next to the Christ who bore our burden of sin. And he, we're walking with him in this world, and the yoke is on our neck, but he bears the weight of it, not us. He has borne the weight on the cross. And this is what it means to live the joyful Christian life. And every time we're pulled away from that, we remind ourselves that we have a little time on this earth and that we have been united with this one who claims for himself that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So if we're walking through the world and we feel the yoke being heavy and the burden being heavy and it's being work in the world, we are barking up the wrong tree. We're serving the wrong master because that's not life with Jesus. Life with Jesus is full of joy and sustaining power with him. And we are crucifying our sin, yes, through that same sustaining power and joy. That fuels our crucifying of sin so that we walk with him. That's the only way that we get through this short amount of time that we're in our life here. Because you know that eternity is exponentially and unfathomably longer than what we have to suffer with here. That's why the songwriter wrote that we're going to close, that we're almost home. We just keep the end in sight. We keep the finish line in sight because Christ is carrying us there and will not let us go. He will not drop us along the way. Do we have a fight to fight along the way? Yes. 
Do we do it in our own strength? No, it will not lead to salvation. We do it in his strength because he is fighting our battles for us. Didn't we just sing that? He fights them for us. So Isaiah is calling the people to that kind of repentance and he calls us to that, to turn away from the world and trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for the consistency that Isaiah brings us, these same truths that we are challenged and overwhelmed, but also encouraged and equipped. And we pray, Father, that as we continue uh, in our life, as we walk from periods of darkness where we, can't, we feel like we can't see you, we feel like evil is running so rampant that it overwhelms us, or maybe in our own life where we are in a season where we're pursuing a sin that is just leading us into cloudy vision and darkness, would you, Father, draw us back to yourself today? Because you are always our sustainer. We may choose to walk away from you, but you're coming after us by giving us what we pursue when it's not you. So we pray, Father, that those times of walking away from you become shorter and shorter and shorter as we apply your gospel, as we trust in Christ and live according to your spirit. Keep us focused on our reward, the next age, the new heaven and new earth where there is no more sin to fight. Keep us focused there because we are truly almost home. So it's to you that we're thankful in Jesus' name. Amen.